Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Nikki, today we're looking at the church in Sardis. This is found at the beginning of the third chapter of Revelation. And I want to know if, as you studied these first six verses of chapter three, if it rang any old bells for you. Yes, it did. Not just for me, for my husband as well. I had a conversation with him about it. Ooh, tell. It was verse five. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Mm. And that takes us to the text out of Matthew chapter 10 in verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. That brought up all of the fear yeah. that I had as an Adventist thinking forward to the last days uh-huh. when Seventh-day Adventists would be put on trial, in a sense, by the world. We would be hunted, we would be persecuted for our Sabbath keeping, and we would be asked before unbelievers <laughs> if we believed in the Sabbath. Oh, yes. And if we confessed before these men and women, whoever they were, yeah. if we confessed and held fast to our Adventism, then we would be saved. Exactly. E- even if they tortured and killed us, all of that was there in the I back remember. of my mind. But if you endure to the end and you hold fast to the Sabbath truth, you will be saved. But if you don't confess my name, if you say, oh, no, no, I don't need to keep the Sabbath anymore, you've lost your salvation. Jesus will not confess you before his father. So this was how I thought of these verses. And that was, you know, for us looking to the future, but right. it also brought up pictures of Christians who would go before Caesar or whoever oh, was yeah. in leadership. And as long as they confessed his name, then they'd be saved. If not, they lost their salvation. So there was no security there. I asked my husband about it. I just read the beginning of that. You know, what What do you think about? Uh-huh. And he's like, oh, that's an Adventist trigger Wow! right there. So I said, look at the context of that text. And I read on, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. (laughs) I don't know, for some reason, I didn't remember that these texts went together. Yes, I get that. I mean, here we're reading Revelation, which is already a trigger for us. Mm -hmm. It's used randomly to support Adventist beliefs and practice. And then you tie it with that verse. I wouldn't have remembered it either coming at it from Revelation. Yeah. Coming from this angle. I mean, I've read through the book of Matthew since leaving Adventism, but the context was in mind because I was sitting there reading the book of Matthew all the way through to see it this way, to, to have that Adventist trigger come up and then to see this is Christ calling his disciples to share the truth of the gospel, who he is within our own household, right. before our families, our parents. Yes, that's it, not a time of trouble. It's not a time of trouble. And it's not a confession like, this is the very moment that's going to determine the rest of my life. Yes. And eternity. <laughs> and I can lose everything right now. Mm-hmm. This is 
being a true believer. Confessing what's true in your life with the Lord Jesus to people who don't believe in him. Even if it impacts your relationships yes. with your mother, your father, your son, your daughter. Yeah. At any cost, you follow Christ and you confess him. And that was the text that helped me as I was making my way out of Adventism. And boy, was I making waves uh-huh. inside of those relationships. And it carried me through yeah. because I knew I had to speak the truth. And I do hear former Adventists sometimes say, yeah, but you know, my mom or my dad, they're in their 80s. It would kill them to know, I know. this. I can't tell them. And this text is always what comes up. The more anyone loves Christ, the more they're going to love the people around them. That's just how it works. And so by telling them the truth and putting Christ first, you're confessing him before man. Mm -hmm. You know, I get very upset when I hear people say, well, my parents are so old, it will just kill them. It would give my mother a heart attack if she knew I were leaving. She's 80 years old. And I want to say, my parents left Adventism officially for the Lord Jesus in their 70s. -hmm. And that seems old and like maybe, you know, people have lost their acuity by that age. I'm sorry, the Lord knows how to reach people in any state, and my parents knew what they were doing, and they left. And I'll never forget the little fragment of paper we got in the mail several years ago, maybe 10 now, And it was written in shaky handwriting, and the person writing said, I am 90 years old. My son has been reading Romans with me, and I see I am free. I know who the Lord is. I am free. I have left Adventism. She was 90 years old. Do not (laughs) underestimate your parents and grandparents when you think about these things. No, and in fact, looking back over, I guess it's about 13 years that I've been out in here with Lamb, when I look at the people whose parents left Adventism, it was usually up in the 80s and 90s, dementia, health issues, confronted with the reality of of getting older and what's actually really important. And they have a whole history of the hypocrisy of Adventism. Just because they're not talking to you about it doesn't mean God hasn't given them dissonance over their lifetime there. You know, I'm finding more and more how actually insulting it is to think that people past a certain age aren't acute enough or are too fragile to handle truth. Truth is what empowers us at any age. Mm-hmm. It keeps us going. It gives us purpose. I'm sorry. Don't ever underestimate people with the truth, please. <laughs> <laughs> and if God is telling us that we are to confess before these people, before these relationships, he understands there are generational gaps involved. Exactly. This is his design. Yes. And it's his call to us. We can't say we know better because we're afraid of what it could do or how it could feel. Because this moment of discomfort could actually be the watershed for an eternity. And just by the way, if your parents or grandparents are becoming a little less acute, if dementia seems to be setting in, don't stop talking to them about Jesus. Our friend Cheryl, you know, who's on the board of Life Assurance, she had two parents who died in the past 10 years, and they were older and losing their mental acuity. And she has said both of them responded more to the gospel as their ability to argue with it went away. (laughs) And I'll never forget her amazing story. She used to go and see her mom, who was failing at least once a week and care for her. And her husband, Woody, said, 
let's take these tapes of some sermons, some by Gary Enrig, some by the late Bob George. And Cheryl said, mom can't even tell what's the difference between a commercial and the program on TV. She'll never get this. And Woody just said, let's take the tapes. And they started playing these sermons for her mom and she ate them up. (laughs) And she'd look at Cheryl and go, do they tell us that in church? And Cheryl would say, no. (laughs) And her mother heard the gospel and didn't fight it, received it with some joy. So sometimes the Lord uses dementia to take away the cognitive arguments so the spiritual reality of who Jesus is can get deeply into a person's spirit, unfettered by the old habituated arguments. Don't ever think it's too late to tell them. Mm-hmm. So while this passage here, where Jesus is talking to the church in Sardis, surrounded by paganism, it's definitely speaking to confessing Christ and the truth to a pagan world, we also see that we're also called to do that within our own families daily Mm -hmm. as we walk with Him. And sometimes that is the pagan world we're called to witness to. So you also had kind of an Adventist moment. Surprised (laughs) me. Mine was related to verse 3 where Jesus says, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. (laughs) Well, Nikki, remember and keep? (laughs) What, as an Adventist, did that mean to you? Oh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Exactly. And I'm looking at this thing and thinking, this has nothing to do with the Sabbath. This message has everything to do with the gospel of the Lord Jesus and His finished work. And He's calling this church to remember the gospel and keep it and repent from having forgotten, from having turned away, from having not kept it in the front of their minds. No, the remember and the keep that are ours in the new covenant are not the Sabbath. And I want to say that to every Adventist who says, well, God said, remember. Remember the Sabbath. Why would he say remember the Sabbath if it wasn't to keep doing it? That was the old covenant. That was the sign of the old covenant. Now in the new covenant, where Jesus has fulfilled the law, our new remember is the Lord Jesus. In fact, remember, remember (laughs) when he gave the Lord's Supper to his disciples the night he was betrayed? Mm -hmm. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He gave the disciples and all of the Christian church a new remember that night. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled its death sentence. He broke its power when he rose from death, and his blood is our new remember. And we keep that gospel close, and we live it. It's interesting that the the most faithful Jew right now is the Jew who has come to faith in Christ. That's true. That is the most faithful Jew, because Christ fulfilled the law. And I love how Gary explains that. He says, Christ filled it up with meaning, which takes you to Colossians 2.16. All those things were a shadow, but Christ is the substance. So the most obedient response to remembering the Sabbath is believing in Christ and resting in his finished work on our behalf Mm -hmm. and resting in that eternal life he's given us now. There's no way around it. Christ is everything. He is. He is the reality that all of those shadows we laid our lives down for as Adventists, he is the reality all of those foreshadowed. Mm -hmm. He is our Sabbath rest. (laughs) 
Please are remember and keep. <laughs> so Nikki, why don't we read the letter to Sardis? <laughs> okay. So this is Revelation 3 verses 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, it's interesting to me that the church of Sardis is perhaps the one, with the exception of Laodicea, that is in the most desperate condition. It is nearly dead. I think about what does that mean to be a nearly dead church? And it's kind of helpful to back up and look at the city in which this church was. It kind of, in some odd way, the city and the church reflect each other. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the city. Nikki, what did you learn about Sardis? What are some interesting things? There was a lot for me. Yeah, there was. There was a lot for me too. It was a lot of fun to study Sardis. It was a really important and ancient city. It was the ancient capital of the Lydian kingdom, which existed 1,200 years before Christ. So it had yeah. a long history. Think about that. 1,200 years before Christ. And if we think about it, the date of the exile was 14-something the Lydian Empire was very old. It was, and it was very rich. Yeah. It was a very rich city. There was a river that ran through that had a lot of gold, and they were able to mine the gold. Mm -hmm. And it's believed that they were the first to mint gold and silver coins. The last Lydian king is kind of famous in history, King Croesus. He was the richest man in the world. He reigned in Sardis from 560 to 546 BC. Now think about that and you can think this was just after the Babylonian exile of Judea. King Croesus was reigning up in Sardis at the time the Israelites were marched off to Babylon. He was considered the richest man in the world. So it, it was a saying for a long time that somebody is as rich as Croesus. And he, like you said, was the first to mint gold and silver coins. And that's kind of an interesting first in world history, to our knowledge. Mm -hmm. In fact, we were talking about this before we came in here, and Richard said, well, did they have other kinds of coins? And, you know, frankly, I'm not sure, but it appears that people just dealt in gold and silver without being minted coins prior to that. That's the impression I had. Did you have a different impression? Not different, I, but I did wonder, maybe there was kind of a barter system? Could have been. I, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But Croesus introduced coins. Well, actually, his father did, but his father didn't mint them out of gold. He picked up what his father had started and put them into the precious metal category. So after King Croesus, he met his end 
because Persia conquered Sardis. Now, this is a complicated conquering because Sardis was located at the very top of a huge hill that had steep cliffs that were 1,500 feet above the valley below. It was almost inaccessible, and Sardis considered itself inaccessible and figured it was safe. It was so safe, in fact, that in its entire long millennia-old history, it was only captured twice. The first time was by not the Lydians who were there, but they were conquered by the Persians. Now think back to what we learned in Daniel, that the Judean kingdom was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, and during Daniel's lifetime, near the end of that time, the Persians came and conquered Babylon. Well, the Persians also captured some other places. They moved their kingdom out east, and they captured Sardis as well. And the king that captured Sardis was none other than Cyrus the Great of Persia. He was the one who'd also issued the decree for the Israelites to leave Babylon and go back to the land and rebuild Jerusalem. So this is the Cyrus who captured Sardis. And he captured Sardis in about 457 to 456 BC, right about the same time he issued the decree for Israel to go back to the land and provided money for them to do so. Now, there's an interesting story about how the Persians were able to capture Sardis, which was considered inaccessible. The story says that the Persian army was camped down around the base of this huge cliff, And there was a Persian soldier looking up the cliff at the city of Sardis, and he saw a Sardinian soldier accidentally drop his helmet over the edge of that cliff. And as this Persian watched, he saw that soldier dart down an otherwise invisible path that worked its way down the side of that cliff, and he retrieved his helmet and went back up the cliff. Well, that night, the Persians knew where to go. And they walked up that path and went around the city and got in the gates and took it. So that was an interesting story. It is interesting. And in fact, there was an ancient proverb used when talking about doing the impossible. It was capturing Sardis. So are you going to capture Sardis? Yeah, that's my new saying. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, I'll get it done. I'm capturing Sardis. Exactly. (laughs) The Persians controlled Sardis until Alexander the Great came along. Now, remember Alexander the Great. He was that big horn coming out of the shaggy goat of Daniel 8. And he's the one that moved all over the face of the globe, captured so much of the known world, and died at the age of 33. So Alexander the Great came up to this cliff saw the side of the cliff that was not guarded because the inhabitants of Sardis didn't bother to guard the side that seemed too steep to master. And Alexander the Great led his troops up that unguarded, unmasterable side, but he mastered it and he captured Sardis. So Sardis was ruled by Alexander and he then died after he conquered it in 334 BC. And after he died, it became part of the Seleucid Empire. Now you remember going back to Daniel 8, that shaggy goat with the big horn. When the big horn was cut off, that was Alexander, four little horns sprung up. And in history, we remember that the Greek Empire that Alexander had conquered and ruled with an iron hand as he captured the world, that it went to four of his generals. And one of those generals was Seleucus. And Seleucus set up 
and became the father of the Seleucid dynasty. And they ruled the part of the world that was Syria, that was Turkey, that was the city of Sardis. So the Seleucid Empire had charged then of Sardis until it was absorbed by Rome years later. So this city had gone through being the Lydian capital, to being a conquered city of Alexander the Great, to being ruled by the Seleucid Empire, and then finally becoming a Roman city as Rome became the world power and took it over. And then once Rome took it over, of course, like they did with all of the cities they took over, they began investing in its infrastructure and building, building temples and all kinds of things. In AD 17, it was devastated by an earthquake. And the people appealed to Tiberius Caesar for help, who sent millions of dollars, and he gave a five-year tax relief for them to rebuild the city. And they loved him for this. And they really invested in emperor worship at that point. They were very happy for his help and his loyalty. So the city became famous for that as well. Their patron god was Artemis, the goddess of fertility. They really liked their fertility gods back then, didn't they? Yes. This is the goddess also known as Diana. Their temple to her was the third largest in the world. And as the Romans were building these things, it, it got to the point where the Acropolis that held the city up on top of this cliff, it became too small for all the building that Rome was doing. So they started building below the cliff. So in a sense, Sardis was in two parts, up and down. And most of the Roman building was down at the foot of the cliff. And it's interesting because J. Vernon McGee's commentary said that the word Sardis originally was a plural word, so that it referred to both the city up on the hill and the city down below the hill. It was all the same under the same government, but it was essentially two parts to the city. Yeah, that is interesting. I like that. John MacArthur was talking about some of the famous people that came out of Sardis. And one of them that was interesting to me was Aesop, the fable weaver, as he called him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. and, And even Xerxes, the great general came out of Sardis. Now, Xerxes, remember, is associated with Esther, and that was definitely Persian, the Persian Empire. Also, Thales, or Thales, the first Greek philosopher, and Salon, a wise legislature. So, there were several people who are famous in history who Mm -hmm. came out of Sardis. You know, one of the things that was interesting to me, I both read this and I heard Gary Inrig talk about it in his word search presentation. In that lower city, when Rome started building, there was a really large Jewish synagogue at Sardis. Oh, yeah. And there are the remains of the second century synagogue today. They're being excavated. In fact, we watched a video together with Richard that showed some of this stuff. It was really interesting. But Gary pointed out that this synagogue was built right next to a large Roman gymnasium. Gymnasiums implied not only exercise, but exercise in the nude. Mm -hmm. That's how the Greeks and the Romans used gymnasiums. And Gary's point was that historically, anything the Jews built would have been far, far, far from the world. So to have the synagogue built basically across from or right next to the gymnasium suggested already that there's some kind of spiritual compromise going on in this city. Now, to be sure, this is not the church, Mm -hmm. but the church is in this city where there's all of this spiritual lack of discernment and syncretism going on between 
Judaism and paganism, and then we have the church, and Jesus is here reprimanding this church. It's interesting that we don't know a lot about how some of these churches got started, except to say that they certainly came out of the gospel spread that began in Ephesus yes. and went out into all of Asia. And so we we do know that. And we also have the name of a famous pastor who was pastoring at the church here in Sardis named Melito. And some people think that he wrote the first commentary on the book of Revelation, which I'd love to get my hands oh, on. that be fun? And then also this letter was written about 35 years after the church was established in Sardis, which is not long. No, it is not. Which is very, very sad when you think about how they're described, and, and we'll walk through that as we move through the text. It's really interesting. It's really quick that the way this happened. And also they're not condemned for any sins in this passage. Isn't that interesting? It's a condition they're condemned for. It's their dead condition. That's very sad and sobering. There's no mention of persecution. There's no mention of false teachers. It seems to me that the syncretism was absolute because yeah. they were not coming up against the world around them. They were just living and letting live. Peacefully. Doesn't it kind of make you think of, well, whatever works for you. Mm-hmm. In Sunday school last week, I asked the kids, so can you think of how you might answer if somebody said, well, you know, I don't believe that you have to have absolute truth. I don't believe in absolute truth. I believe in whatever works for you. How would you answer? And this one boy, teenage boy said, I'd say that's subjective. Mm-hmm. And I said, explain that. He said, if there's objective truth, to just say subjectively that whatever works for you is good enough can't be okay because there actually is truth whether you want to believe it or not. And that was a really interesting insight. And I'm thinking that sort of addresses the situation I'm reading about here at Sardis. Mm -hmm. So we come to verse one where Jesus identifies himself to Sardis. And remember, we've talked about the fact that he reveals aspects of himself that he revealed to John in chapter one. He reveals aspects of himself to each church that he wants that church to understand because it addresses their condition. And he addresses himself to Sardis as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And he says this to them, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Nikki, what is significant about the way Jesus identifies himself to Sardis? This almost makes me emotional. He's telling them, I'm God and I have what you need. Their need is life. And he's the one who holds the sevenfold, the perfect spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the one who regenerates, the one who gives life. He holds the spirit in his hand and they need him. Mm -hmm. They had a reputation for being alive, but they were dead. You know, I don't think I'll ever forget um, as I rewatched the word search teaching by Gary, where he said about this, Jesus is essentially saying, if you want the Spirit, you don't go to the Spirit to get the Spirit. Oh, yeah. You go to Jesus to get the Spirit. And there are so many Christian or quasi-Christian churches today who say, oh, we're a Holy Spirit body. You know, we seek the Spirit. We go to the Spirit. We ask for the Spirit's power. And they address the Spirit, and they ask for more of the Spirit. And that's not the way we get the Spirit. The Spirit is guaranteed to everyone who trusts Jesus. We are all given spiritual gifts. He indwells every believer. 
we become alive. We become vitalized when we come to Jesus and trust Him. Because coming to Jesus is not just about walking up to a man and saying, can I have what's in your hand? Can I have some of that spirit? It involves admitting who we are. Mm -hmm. We come to Jesus in our sin and need and say, please forgive me. And I need your atonement for my sin. And that's when the spirit is given to us. Doesn't it remind you of Simon the Magician who went and asked Paul for some of the Spirit? How can, what can I do to buy this? Yes, and he reprimanded him. And that was a request that reflected somebody who was not a believer. He was asking to buy the Holy Spirit, which meant he didn't understand repentance and trusting in Jesus. And I think that it's significant that he's explaining himself as the one who holds the Holy Spirit, who holds the spirits of God, and the seven stars. And the way we've understood the seven stars as we've talked through this, and mm-hmm. I know there are different views, is that these are the pastors, the overseers of these churches. These are people. Messengers who bring the word of God to the people. God holds them in his hand as surely as he holds the Holy Spirit. So he's both the one who gives life and the one who sustains and keeps our salvation. Exactly our new life, which is what this church needs, even though they have a reputation for being alive. That means other churches are hearing that the church at Sardis is alive and well. And it's interesting when you think that Sardis, of all of these churches, of all of these seven churches, was politically and historically the most important and significant of these cities, of these seven cities. And yet now it is a dying, waning city, and the church is dying and waning, and it's almost as if the church is riding its laurels, riding its reputation, without being aware of what it needs today. And it's becoming less and less powerful. And my sense of this church church in reading it is that it's filled with a lot of people who haven't fully trusted Jesus. Well, in 35 years in, you might have another generation coming through. That's right. Riding on the coattails of the faith of their parents and the reputation of their parents. Sure. Sure, we're Christians. Of course we're Christians. We believe in Jesus without ever admitting one's sin. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? So true to the pattern that we've already seen, he gives a condemnation. And then he tells them, he gives a command. But before he gives the command, I think it's really important to point out that he's not condemning them for sins. That's true. He's not condemning them for syncretizing or any of that kind of stuff. We're dealing with a dead church. It's their nature that he's condemning them for. Yeah. He's starting at the beginning. This is a church of spiritually dead people, with a few, we'll find out, who are alive. And, you know, I think these people are claiming to be Christians, they're worshiping in the church, and yet Jesus is here saying, wake up. In other words, he's calling on these people to come to faith before it's too late. Yeah, that wake up, it it gives the the picture of Lazarus. It does. Mm -hmm. It does. And I think again about this mystery that we face when we think about the fact that God knows us, that God pre-elects, foreordains, He knows us, and He has our names in His book, if we're His, and yet we are responsible to believe 
when he reveals himself to us. That's a tension we can't resolve. We do a disservice to the gospel and to the word of God if we try to explain one side of that equation to the expense of the other. Both are true, and we have to know that even though we can't necessarily explain how it works, we are asked to be responsible for our sin and to repent before God and to believe. We are responsible for our response to Him. And at the same time, He calls us, He knows us, He brings us to life. And when He's here saying this to the church at Smyrna, we have to believe that there are people who are His in that church who haven't come to faith yet. And that's true for churches today. And we see a little further down in the text that there were people in that church who had come to faith. The church as a congregation was dead, but there were some who had not yet soiled their garments. When we look at verse 2, where it says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. I might be reading too much into this, but I see both the tension of the sovereignty of God Mm -hmm. and the command to man, because he says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, not are about to die. Right. He lets them know there's work yet for you to do. Yes. He's holding the seven spirits and the seven stars, and he's essentially saying, wake up. Life comes through the gospel. Come to me. Come to me. And the fact that he says strengthen what remains means they had the gospel at one point. They had been given the truth, but they had let it go. And we can look at the city. This is one of those neat places where you see that parallel. And you can see how the city fell both times. First, with careless guarding. Right. Then, no guarding at all. Right. And then the city fell. Just became apathetic because this has been working all this time. We don't need to worry anymore. Oh, no. Which I think is a word of caution to the churches. We cannot become careless in our guarding the gospel because the next generation is going to come up. And if we're careless in guarding it now, they won't guard it at all. That's true. This makes me think about the message in Hebrews 3, 13 to 15. This church at Sardis needs to be concerned for the brothers and sisters in the church. And they need to encourage one another and admonish one another to do good. Because Jesus has just said, um, wake up, strengthen that which remains. I have not found your deeds completed. And when we look at Hebrews three thirteen to 15, we read this, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be, and here we go, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. When we look at this Hebrews passage, we have to realize that we today in the church, like the people in Sardis, have to encourage one another, not forsake meeting together, so that we can help one another not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I always think it's so interesting. It doesn't say, so you won't be hardened by sin. It's so you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Mm -hmm. I mean, Eve was deceived in the garden. She didn't just outright think she was breaking God's law to her. She was deceived and it hardened her. And that's the nature of the true body of Christ. Jesus is saying, wake up, take what's here, and we encourage one another. 
you know, I think it's worth pointing out that this Hebrews 3 passage comes in the same chapters, 3 and 4, that talk about the Sabbath and the Adventists will use that text. Therefore, there remains a Sabbath to the people of God. And what we see in this text is we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. It doesn't say if we keep the Sabbath. Absolutely. We never read that in the New Testament. It's about our confession. And our confession has to be full of assurance because God can't fail and he doesn't lie. And that brings us right into verse three, which we've already talked about, the remember that a Christian is supposed to do. And the church at Sardis was to remember what? They were to remember what they had received. Yeah. Which was what? The gospel. Yes. Which is what? That Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, came Yes, and he died and he was buried and resurrected on the third day and he was seen and he did all of this to propitiate for our sins and to bring us eternal life when we place our faith in him to give us the sevenfold spirit of God yes, exactly. to regenerate us and make us his. And he keeps us. And here's what I love about that word keep. We're to remember the gospel and keep it. And God keeps us. The Greek word for keep used here is tereo. It's Strong's number 5093. And it means to watch over to guard, to observe, to properly maintain and keep intact. This is what they're called to do with the gospel. They're to keep it intact, to properly maintain it, to guard it, to not lose it. Right. And in the same way that they guard this life-saving message for the next generations, guard it in their heart, Christ guards and keeps us. That's true. He maintains us and keeps us intact. (laughs) When we look around at the liberal churches today, we see that they have abandoned trust in the Word of God. And as churches, as groups, they have become dead churches. Now, there still may be some alive people who are trusting Christ inside those churches, but as organizations, as they have left the authority of Scripture, they have become dead churches. And this is the problem with Sardis, if they would return to the Word of God and teach it to their members and submit to it, they would feed the life-giving Word of God to the people who haven't trusted Christ yet. He keeps the individuals alive, and He ultimately holds the church in His hand. But our responsibility is to believe His Word and to allow His Spirit to change us through His Word. So then he goes on and says, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come to you. This gives me the picture of Jesus talking about coming like a thief in the night when he returns. But Gary said that this is more likely an unexpected visit that's current to the time of that church, that he was going to come in judgment against that church. Yeah. He is actually saying he is going to judge the dead. (laughs) He is not leaving it even up to the church leaders. He himself will come. This is more severe than removing a a lampstand, which no one wants to see happen, but he's coming with judgment. And you know, if you think that the Lord God doesn't come in judgment, think about Israel and how they were marched off to Babylon as prophecy said would happen if they apostatized. And they did And God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come 
and to take them into a captivity for 70 years. And he oversaw their return to the land through the Persian king Cyrus. But the fact is, God does judge his people as he says he will if they do not repent. But if they're dead, they're not his people, right? Individually, that's true. And yet his message here is to the corporate church at Sardis. Mm -hmm. And they're, as a group, taking his name to the community and saying, we're Christians. And he's saying, no, you're not. (laughs) You're dead. That's interesting. That's the the way that we're taught through Paul's writings as well. That if you are in a body of Christ and people who bear the name of Christ are in unrepentant sin, put them out. That's true. So, yes, the church is not a nation like Israel was, but the church is a body that carries the name of Christ into the community. And the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to judge this church if you do not repent and take the life that is here for you. It doesn't mean that the individuals who believe in him will lose their salvation, but it does mean he will deal with the body. Which I think is why it's reassuring that he introduces himself as the one who holds the seven messengers. Yeah. So in verse four, he says, but some have not soiled their garments and will walk with me in white. And what does this suggest, Nikki, saying that people will walk with him in white for they are worthy? Well, this is a kind of commendation. (laughs) It is. (laughs) It's a spark of hope here. He says that they haven't soiled their garments. It's as if they had already had these white garments and they haven't soiled them. So then I wonder, is this their personal works? And I know that there are a few different views on this. Gary outlined them in his talk. He said, um, some believe that the white refers to the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Some believe that this comes out of Roman culture. Apparently, when an emperor returned at the time of victory, he'd walk into the city and all the citizens of that city would put on white robes and walk in with him celebrating this triumph. So some people see that. And then others say that the whiteness is their own personal holiness, particularly because it seems to be in contrast with the polluted garments. I don't know, maybe it's my background in Adventism, (laughs) but I think it's related to the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us because he says for they are worthy. And Mm -hmm. the only thing that makes us worthy is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Exactly. That's how I see it too. And this righteousness of Christ does seem to yield works of righteousness that God gives us. Yes. For example, in Revelation 6, 11, it says, and there was given to them a white robe. And they were told that, these are the souls under the altar, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were killed, even as they had been, would be completed. So, he who overcomes will be clothed in white is telling us again that those who are in Christ are the overcomers and they will absolutely be clothed in white because they're covered with Christ and his alien to them righteousness. And Jesus will confess them before the Father and the angels, and he'll never blot their names out of the book of life. And this brings us to the verse we've already mentioned. Can you talk to us a bit about what will happen with those people he confesses before his Father? What will he never do? He will never erase their names from the book of life. And he will confess their names before his father and before his angels. This book of life thing is fascinating to me. When I was growing up as a little girl and I would hear about the book of life, in my head, 
this book was in a sanctuary in heaven. Of course. And there were angels there. Mm -hmm. And they were putting marks over my sins that I would confess. Yeah. Even as I describe this, I can remember the bedroom I would lay in, in my bed, trying to remember all of them, picturing these angels taking care of things. And I I would think that the book of life was the same thing, completely illogical, not at all what's being discussed here. The book of life determines whether we are his or not. And actually in Ephesians chapter one, we were written there before the foundation of the earth, before the lamb was slain. Exactly. But there are a couple different ideas about what this could mean. And one of them, which I thought was very interesting, Gary talked about, he said that cities in the ancient world all had registers that they called the book of the cities. And when you were born, your name was written in it. But then when you died, your name was erased from it. Wow. And so he's saying this could be that Jesus is saying that if the book of life is the register of the citizens of heaven, then he's promising that even death will not erase your name from the book of life. So this isn't so much a statement about the fact that we could potentially have our names erased. This is a statement that if you overcome, if you believe, if you're mine, I will never let you go. Even death can't separate you from me. So don't worry about all the hardships that are coming along. He's not so much saying, some of you will be removed from the book of life. Mm-mm. He's actually saying, many of you in Sardis are in the book of life and will never be erased. Mm-hmm. So confess me. <laughs> and finally, this brings us to the last verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here again, we see these letters were meant to be read by all of the churches. Even if they weren't in Sardis dealing with what Sardis was dealing with, they needed to know what God expects from his people. That's right. And we today in the churches today have to know this. So as I read through this and I think about the recently leaving former Adventists who leave Adventism, and are reading this book. And even if they're not reading this book at the moment, but they're thinking, what do I do now if I'm not an Adventist? And they they think about what church to attend. I just want to say, it's easy to think that all of Christianity is now open to us. I thought that when I left. We were used to having doctrines told to us and explained to us through the worldview that we grew up with, the physicalist Adventist worldview that we grew up with. Now, Our primary concern as we leave is to submit our minds to the Word of God and let go of our past worldview so we can develop one based on Scripture. That will help us see, are we looking at a church that is alive with the gospel, with Jesus as the central person of their faith and worship? Is this a church where scripture is taught? Is this a church where the true Trinity is honored as our one God? That's really important for people leaving Adventism. And it's very easy to get caught up in groups that claim to be Holy Spirit focused or very intellectual. We have to know that what we're doing is honoring Jesus and submitting to his word where we learn about him. We have to learn to discern So, I just want to say, if you're leaving Adventism and looking for a church, examine doctrinal statements. Be alert to the teaching. Immerse yourselves in Scripture. Honor and love the Word of God. 
It's easy to land in a church that claims Christianity but doesn't embrace the full counsel of God. Think about if you ended up in a church like Sardis, which looked like it had all the right beliefs, but it was dead inside. It would be hard to grow. So look for expository preaching for God's Word at the center. Pray to know what is real and true. I can't overstress this. God will answer that prayer. I've felt for a long time that I grew up in deception. I was deceived once. I could be deceived again. And it is my job to trust Jesus and to submit to Him in an ongoing way, asking Him to plant me deeply in His Word, deeply in truth and reality, and to help me to discern and to know what is true. I ask Him to help me to honor Him and to obey His Word. And at the very beginning of this is obeying what he said, to believe in him. As the jailer said to Paul in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is just this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So if you have not faced the fact that you are a sinner, born in sin, unable to rescue yourself, that you need the saving work of Jesus who completed the atonement for your sin on the cross, who died, who was buried, and who was raised on the third day, according to scripture, to break the power of death over you. If you haven't understood that, this is the time to look closely at what Jesus said about himself and to realize that you need to be rescued. You can trust Jesus, bring your sin to his cross, and ask him to forgive you and to give you his resurrection life. Do it today if you haven't, and you can be assured that God will confess your name before his Father and his angels. And join us next week as we look at the Lord's message to the church at Philadelphia. And we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.